What's up, Pop Tart Nation? Welcome to the Tarty Party. My name's Inevitable Mike. Of course, you know because you're listening to this show right now. And I want to thank you for listening to this show. I appreciate it. What I wanted to talk about real quick in this commercial break is Wild Oni page on Facebook is up. You can go to hashtag Legend of the Wild Oni or at Wild Oni or just go to Facebook, type in Wild Oni. Go like the page, subscribe, lots of cool updates. I'll be posting two, three times a week there. And if you don't know, go to the blog on comics and litter and pop-tarts.com where you can leave me a voicemail, potentially be heard in the show. Let me know what you like about Wild Only, what you're looking forward to, what you like about the show, what you'd like to see or hear on the show. And maybe if you have a suggested guest, maybe I could make an active goal of making that requested guests a guest on the show so you can hear from them i always appreciate emails comments go subscribe to this the comics substack newsletter always always leave open comics there for fans to go in and comment on my newsletter i appreciate you guys all around the world in all the 11 countries that i know of and possibly more who listen to the show every week i appreciate it now back to the tardy party Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your host, Inevitable Mike. This is another episode of Comics and Pop-Tarts podcast, where we interview creators of all different kinds, supporting the community uh, of just about everything, but most importantly, comics, which is near and dear to my heart. And it's near and dear to another person's heart, who's our guest tonight, Philip Russert, the CEO and creator of Philbo Publishing, representative of artists, and the mind behind tragedy and the most recent book, Withered, now on Kickstarter. How you doing, Philip? Hey, how are you? Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Oh, no problem. Is this a different experience for you, being audio only? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I've done like one or two others before, but it, it's cool. I'm not really all that pretty to look at, so. <laughs> oh, man. Thank you uh, for taking the time out your busy <clears throat> schedule to, to come and talk to me today. Um, we're going to talk about Withered. We're going to talk about uh, your artist representation. And, and then I have a few questions for you, uh, just from one creator to another. Seeing tragedy come along since issue one behind the scenes um, and seeing seeing it become as big as it is has been kind of inspiring. Um, I hope to back your next campaign for tragedy where I can get a big chunk of all the action oh, right you. here at home physically. <laughs> I appreciate that. I I honestly appreciate everybody who spends their hard on money on my my uh, dreams and my creations. I, I sincerely mean that. I I appreciate that, man. And that's that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons why I do this, man. Because if we don't support each other, and you know, we only get so many pieces of the pie as far as you know when it comes to making money, trying to do what we love for a living. That if we don't support each other, then there won't be enough of anybody else to you know help pick up the pieces or carry along or get you to that that next level. Um, one of the things I thought was really cool is a few, was that a month ago, late earlier this year that you had opened up a contest where you were accepting 10 page submissions and you were going to personally publish them and then help that creator along. Um, I wanted to compete. My content was a little too mature at the time and I didn't have anything else prepared. So, but at the same time I did reach out to you and I was like, Hey man, like if you need somebody who also needs help, then, you know, I'm, I'm an editor. I don't mind putting in a little bit of extra elbow grease for, for other creators. I love helping new people get in because I had a lot of help getting into the industry when I was breaking in. So I like to pay that forward. Yeah. As Philbo publishing grows, I'm going to need a team, a staff of editors, you know, uh, to, 
I have things in the works and I'm going to need editors at once these things come into fruition because I just can't, you know, I can't do everything myself. So uh, yeah. I look forward to getting to that point and, and uh, talking to you about it. That that's going to be really, really awesome. But right now it's not about me. It's about, uh, it's about Philbo publishing. It's about, you know, tragedy. It's about your new campaign. It's about, you know, your, your representation of, of different artists and kind of how that works. Um, so first let's talk about Withered. That's your new book. Beautiful book. I love some of the artwork, the, the duality covers are really, really cool. Uh, I actually might, you know, pop in on this one because I, I love the topic that Withered mm -hmm. is going into as well, which you can tell us more about. Yeah. So, um, Withered is a departure from, from the other genres I did with tragedy and dynamics. It's, it's basically taking theological beings but from uh, it's going to lead to other uh, cultures as well, Greek mythology and 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 Japanese gods, etc. Right now, it's it's focusing on Christian gods, but it's going to branch out. Basically, time is not the construct or measurement that we think it is. It is actually a malevolent being that has uh, has captured and imprisoned God and is slowly consuming us over decades. Um, and it's the thing that shall not be satiated. And the right-hand man of its army is Lucifer, the Satan. Uh, but Satan has his own plans, of course, because he's the prince of lies. And, the, you know, and he's like really the true villain. And the, the, the archangels of the seven that are, you know, they, that are in history, theological history, three are left. And they were depleted in a great war trying to, to fight this thing in the legions of hell. And... The, re the remaining angels are Archangel Michael, uh, Raphael, and Gabriel, and they're recruiting humans that they deem worthy prior to their de death, you know, one before they die, uh, and knighting them as angels before they're, you know, dead and consumed by this thing uh, to help bolster up their army because the demons, you know, the devil, they're looking to wipe them all out, and that's it. And uh, so the first six issues are written, and the first six issues deal with that. And culminate to a great war in issue six. Uh, and once we get to that level, I actually go back to uh, a retelling, my own retelling, of the descent of Lucifer into hell and becoming the great devil that we know. Um, <clears throat> I just want to make it clear: this is this is not a preachy book if you're if you're not religious, and it is certainly not a blasphemous book if you are religious. It's simply like supernatural. Or, or the movie Legion, or things like that, where you're taking these, these deities and these characters and these personalities mm -hmm. from theological history and just telling it a fun fantasy sci-fi horror story. That's awesome. I love the concept, too. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's pretty original. I don't recall anybody ever coming up with something like that. And it just kind of came to me one day, and I was like, you know, this, this is interesting. I mean... Withered starts as a short story in my prose book, The Devils in the Details. Uh, and I just, I found it fascinating. I thought I, all these ideas popped in my head and I said, why don't I continue this as a comic book? And uh, that's what we're doing. Oh, wow. So you have a prose book that connects into, is that like a prelude or a prologue? Uh, it's a prelude uh, in a sense. The, the, the main protagonist is uh, Joshua Brightson. He's a, he, in, the, in the short story in The Devils in the Details, it shows Joshua on his deathbed and deals with him finding this horrible truth out right before he's going to die. 
uh, talking to uh, a nurse who really is one of the archangels. And uh, it, it ends with his recruitment and the comic book begins with him being a new angel in his younger form and uh, dealing with the loss of his family and missing them. Uh, and this is a guy that as an angel can go back in any form to earth and he's having trouble letting go. So he keeps going down in the form of other human beings to be around his family, to see them, to interact with them, even if it's just a quick little chat. Um, and it's causing tension between him and Archangel Michael because Michael's like, you've got to move on. Uh, we have a bigger thing to deal with. And Joshua's point is, well, there's nothing bigger than fighting for my family. Uh, and, but because Archangel Michael has never had a family, he's, he's an angel, he's never been human, he doesn't understand that attachment. So there's that dynamic between the two of them as this goes on as well. Wow. that Yeah, that's epic. That's an epic right there. I've never, never really pictured. Um, I mean, I've always had various opinions about time. Um, a lot of it, a lot of it kind of culminates to like what we saw in Doctor Strange between Doctor, Doctor Strange and uh, the entity in the, the negative zone, uh, Dora Mamu, who lives outside of time. Um, but the concept of, of something greater than the concept of God trapping God in time is kind of profound. You have to stop and think about it for a minute. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it, it also kind of, it all stems too from me thinking like, why, do, you know, as someone who does believe in God, I, I just like, why is everything, why do things go wrong? Why does he allow these things to be messed up? And I was like, it'd be interesting to come, you know, what are the possible reasons? Like thinking outside the box. And one of them was, well, maybe God's not in charge. Maybe we think he is, but he's no longer in charge. And that just led to, uh, me kind of tying in that and the time concept of being this actual beast that is feeding off of us. And I just amalgamated them together and it just started to take, you know, started to take uh, shape and it just, I found it interesting and I was like, why not? Yeah. Well, I mean, scientifically speaking, uh, things like stress and of course some of the chemicals that you put into your body actually eat away at the cells, regenerative, regenerative properties. And that's where that's where aging comes from, because um, it, it, it makes you think, you know, from the Bible where you're talking about like the books of Noah and they lived for like 600, 700 years to now we only live about 80 to 90. Maybe some of us live uh, over 100 years. And <laughs> uh, obviously, life has gotten more stressful. <laughs> yeah, very. You know, but I also touch on the concept of. Well, if this thing is in charge and it's feeding us, why do good why do good things happen? Well, you have to keep your cattle somewhat willing to live, right? Because that's your sustenance. If if your cattle offs themselves, you have nothing to feed off of. So, you know, it, it's it's weird how the other dichotomy that this thing grants you positive things in your life just to keep you content enough to stick around and be eaten. You know, it's kind of like the, the frog story in the frying pan. You put the fire on low, uh, the heat builds up, the frog doesn't notice, it doesn't realize it's being cooked over time, you know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, or the, was it the turtle and the scorpion? No, that was also a frog story. It was the scorpion and the frog. Yeah. Yeah, where uh, two entities have to live off of one another, but in the end, only one wins. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty much... Every living thing's nature over time is self-preservation, even if it's at the cost of something else, you know? 
that's true. And what dies does come back over time as well. Um, like all the all the futuristic uh, end of the world apocalypse scenarios where like the green grows over the buildings and then over time you don't even notice that they're buildings. Right. Yeah. Um, it's a beautiful book. Will played into an amazing job with a lot of the artwork. Uh, super, <clears throat> super awesome. Uh, it's, it's gorgeous. Yeah, he was it. he was my first thought because he has that old classic style that you would see in like an Edgar Rice Burroughs adaptation, you know, for Tarzan or, or whatever, or even like the old Conans like Joe Kubert used to do. And I wanted something classic like that for such an epic feel of a book. Um, he's not your typical comic book artist. So yeah. if you're looking for the pow, wham, bang, uh, you're not going to get that. This isn't like Batman 66. This is, this is a portrait artist doing sequentials. And he even painted a repainting. He drew it all himself. The, um, the creation of Adam that's on the Sistine Chapel, well, in the Sistine Chapel by Michelangelo, in one of the panels, even though the book is digitally colored, that one panel, he gouache painted the background, which is that image. And it's just gorgeous. Oh, wow. Yeah. I was going to say a lot of, a lot of what I see his name on in the campaign is kind of reminds me, it's reminiscent of the 16th chapel and the type of art that it captures with, with the images actually telling a story. Um, yeah, and he's so easy to work with. He's such a professional. He's on three books right now, and uh, he's still pumping out the pages, and he's, he doesn't sacrifice quality, and he's just, I mean, I may sound biased because I do represent him, but honestly, he was the, I need to put out the best book possible, and that that is regardless of who I represent, but he was just what I wanted for this book, so. That's interesting. Not everybody has access to that type of thing, so it's interesting. How do you, How do you go about, judging what art style you need for a certain project do you base it off mm -hmm. the do you base it off the difficulty of the narrative or do you base it off of this story needs more detail or more needs to pay more attention to detail or maybe well, this story has to focus more on the you know mechanics of actual comics well i mean obviously they all have to be solid sequential storytellers right if you if right. you don't know what's going on in a page or at least have an idea without dialogue then maybe the artist needs to work on the sequential work. Cause like you should have an kind of physically happening. Right. And maybe yeah. get a gist of what's going on if you have a good sequential artist, but as far as style uh, it's, it's really the mood that I'm trying to create the feel of the comic. So like for dynamics, it's a more lighthearted, fun thing. I had this guy, Rob powers do it. He has a very minimalist style uh, with minimalist colors because it was just fun. Um, for tragedy, I wanted that 90s line kind of, you know, looking aesthetic. And I've got Ricardo doing that because it just, that to me was like a, I've been told it's written like an 80s book and, and drawn like a 90s book. But um, so with Withered, again, just going for that classic style, that that feel, like you said, you know, with the, the Sistine Chapel, uh, just a little more classical look um to to invoke that kind of feeling of the majesty of all this right right and there was a certain mm -hmm. reference uh, to a lot of that artwork from you know the was it the <laughs> was it bc up until like the 16th century you know past the renaissance where everything had some type of meaning inside of a meaning and right. 
visually stunning, but in a way that made you look at it and come up with a multitude of opinions on what the meaning could be. I mean, even to this day, they're still finding images inside of images encoded by Da Vinci. Oh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, um, you know, I, again, there was a sophistication, I think, despite how archaic humans could be, there was a certain sophistication in their art styles, their mediums, their their forms of entertainment, whether it be theater or or art and painting, that I think we've kind of lost today. Uh, and I, I did. I wanted to recapture a little bit of that, uh, of that in uh, a comic book. Yeah, and that conversation gets serious as far as philosophical goes. And you're right, like the the degradation on on people questioning uh, topics like immortality and time. We don't sit back enough, I think, as as humans and reconsider what was taught in and told, you know, two three hundred years ago versus all the all the mm-hmm. tools that we have now today to re-examine some of those same aspects and maybe there's some simplicity to it or maybe we can finally capture the complexity and start explaining it in pieces um, well you know i'm 50 years old and i think i was the last generation generation x that had one leg in my parents a generation and one leg in mine and what i mean by that is as much as I was watching my 80s cartoons and, and my 80s TV shows, Buck Rogers and The Greatest American Hero, yeah. I was watching The Little Rascals, I Love Lucy, The Honeymooners, Star Trek. These are all predated from my time on Earth, you know? Right. And I, I knew my three sons and, and uh, you know, all those shows and Doris Day. And I and, and I knew Frank Sinatra and Elvis, you know, um, and Little Richard. So... I think I was the last generation that liked, appreciated, and paid attention to the generations before me, as well as loving and appreciating the generation I was in. I think as the generations have gone on, they've become more isolated and kind of narcissistic and just really into their own thing where they haven't looked back. They don't, like you talk to somebody who's 20 years old today and you mention the greatest American hero, they don't know what you're talking about or the fall guy, but if you talk to me when I was a kid about, you know, the monsters and, and the Adams family, I knew what you were talking about. Right. Right. And I think that, that, that leads people to, to redo a lot of those, you know, old schools, like they redid the monsters recently. Right. It's just not the same as it was before. And, and now, now in some of the TV shows I watch with my son, they make, <laughs> they make fun of things like cassette players, like in the last of us recently. Huh. Hey, Walkman's like, what's a Walkman? Right. <laughs> and I know, I know that didn't come out in my generation, but you know, from from my generation being, you know, fifteen years after your generation, I still know what a Walkman right. was for, and have had the pleasure of using one a few times growing up because I was I was very much you know still VCR and DVD up until the point where. You know, I got a job and was able to buy, you know, all the stuff that I wanted to buy. But for the most part, I think my family was was still living back, you know, 70s and 80s because that's that's when they were born, you know, in the 60s and 70s. Man, I remember for Christmas getting the very first Atari. (laughs) That's (laughs) where I stand. The 2600? No, the the eight. What was it? The Atari eighteen hundred was before that one. It was the, oh, the very that's first the one, that, one. That's the one that took eight tracks, right? <laughs> Basically, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so, the cartridges were just like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was actually. That was my... I, I, if you even think about it, eight tracks uh, was 
the medium when when I was younger, and it went to tapes a few years after. But I remember eight tracks. Yeah. <laughs> I recently started working at the local game exchange uh, part time job to help pay for some of these dreams that I keep talking about, and um, I saw like 30 years worth of game systems come in the door the other day um everywhere from sega saturn to <laughs> uh something called an oyo which i guess was an emulator machine i don't remember that one man it was it was wild like the controller didn't even have like plugins it didn't take any batteries at all i was like what is this <laughs> uh, man i used to have a uh, coleco vision i still actually i still do it's in the basement <laughs> that was in the pile n64 the tower of power I remember. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I saw a Game Gear, uh, Dreamcast, like all all these oldie time ones. Uh, someone brought in some power gloves. Um, it's it's been interesting. It's been super interesting stepping into the past and seeing like where we've come. And and a lot of people don't a lot of people don't take the time, you know, when you look at things like Withered and and kind of re <clears throat> like working way back into the conversation. We don't challenge conceptual ideas anymore we kind of just this a lot of this new generation just kind of takes things at face value and i think that's a mistake <laughs> and, and yeah i mean honestly it helps you grow as a creator when you when you look at others um not just other genres but other timelines i mean i'll give you the example of honeymooners it took place mostly in the same room every episode but it was written so cleverly and well and funny and entertaining that it was a, a to this day it stands up as an amazing show for me my favorite all time uh, sitcom and again it took place in the same little room um you can learn a lot from other generations and how they worked with what they had i mean look at star wars this guy used toy models and yet the special effects to a degree, still stand up today. I mean, uh, you know, they're better than some of the CGI garbage we see. You can learn so much if you step outside your box, outside your generation even, and just look at what's been going on in the world because there's this whole world that isn't centered around you. You know, it isn't centered around me. But I can be a part of that world. And you just got to be willing to reach out and take a look. There's a lot, you know, it's like, it's like the old person telling stories about when they were in World War II and the kid's yawning and he's bored. And then there's that one kid that's like, wow, this is this is incredible. You were 17 and you were thrust into that world. And and you know, and and the women were home taking care of kids, running the factories, the baseball leagues, and everything to keep back home running because everybody was over at the war. I mean, it's just there's so much rich history and culture and and knowledge that you can get from just looking at more than just what you know you know what i mean absolutely one of my biggest biggest regrets and i share this story with you was i visited so i reconnected with my dad for the first time at 16 and i was i went over there um and it was best four days ever uh, up to that point and i was dating somebody and we were arguing and one night my my grandma had wanted me to go through pictures and my dad wanted to sit down and they wanted to share stories with me, but me being a teenager, you know, I had girlfriend problems. So apparently that was important, of course. And, um, I didn't get back to visiting them until three or four years later. And unfortunately my grandmother had passed away during that time. Um, 
it was yeah no it was it was a learning experience there like there was value in in not taking that opportunity to learn about what was initially the years that i missed while i was growing up right so i always take the opportunity now especially now you know especially for any friends and especially people that i don't know because that's that's truly a gift right when you run into someone at a con or even in the parking lot or at a fast food restaurant and they they might be superly food they might guy that you pay at the counter um they might be the girl that you ask you know where is this item in the store or they might be the person working the con like they tell you a story about something that you have no idea about it's always especially as a writer good to just listen and absorb that information it might change your perspective on what you thought of whatever time period that their their story lies in well, unfortunately, I think you touched upon the biggest problem we have today with communication is people's lack of desire to listen. Everybody wants to have their voice heard and they want to speak and they want to say something, but they don't want to listen to what you have to say. And I speak, I think they speak out of ignorance sometimes or just impulsivity. Yeah. Um, and instead of logical, rational thought or, or consideration for others, and that's, you know, they always say the biggest part of communication that's important is, is listening. And you learn a lot by listening and you understand a lot by listening. And then you can truly formulate an opinion or a plan or an idea based on that. It's the same with writing. When you listen to what others have done before you or what others are doing, not that you t not saying that you take their ideas, but learning how it's done, learning processes, learning how to get creative and then come up with your own stuff. You know, it's all a roadmap. And if you take the time to stop, listen, observe, it only enriches you as a creator of whatever content you're doing, whether that's music or movies or, or comic books or prose books or whatever, toys. Right. Oh, especially toys. Toys have a rich history. You can thank toys for a lot of the things you see in the movies and in comic books. <laughs> Right. Uh, like uh, Japanese Spider-Man, you could thank them uh, for bringing the USA Power Rangers. <laughs> right. That's uh, true. With, without that deal with Stan Lee, I mean, um, a lot of Japanese toy makers and, and film would have never made its way all over the, the waters of, of international television, I think, um, just based off the history that you learn about it. Um, I believe it's a series on on Toy History and Netflix is where I watched that. Yeah, uh, the Toys That Made Us, I think it's yeah, called. Yeah, Toys That Made yeah, Us. Yeah. That crazy show. I learned so much about history um, just watching that. Um, and not just about, like, toy mm -hmm. history, but, like, the economic history of American sure. toy markets and just business in general and, like, how some of those corporations came up uh, is pretty fascinating. But yeah, listening is is truly a, a a personality trait that everybody should should have, and it's also a tool and can be a tool, especially if you're especially if you're you know if you're at a con and you're at a table and you're trying to sell books and someone comes up to you and they, they want to know how you did it, and you start talking and they keep cutting you off and like they never find out because they never decided to sit there and just listen. Yeah, they're not really interested in right. finding out how to do it. They're interested in telling you how they did it. <laughs> yeah. uh, versus, you know, the person who looks like they want to say something, but is actually listening to your, your conversation. And then they might walk away, but uh, it's pretty apparent that they were listening and then they got what they needed so they could come back a year later with their own story. 
Um, and that happened, that happens to me a lot at cons. Sometimes I'll hear people talking and I just like, yeah, that sounds like game and the creators being, you know, really positive about it um, because that's what they're supposed to do at cons to interact and, and mogul. That's why they pay the table fee. But like, I'm listening all the time and not just for myself, but like, it's a great place to pick up characters for books, characters for short stories, sure. uh, character dynamics. I mean, if you look at the life of Benjamin Franklin or ever read the book mastery, I mean, when they sent him off to, to France and stuff and he was coming up with publishing, he went to a lot of parties and that's what he would do. He'd look at people and he would come up with backstories or he would just listen to conversations or be a part of it. That's why he was such um, a big pol politics person because of all the intermingling and, and characters that he would come up for, for papers and, and short stories and stuff like that. What is well, you can again you observe humanity and you'll start getting characters right there. Oh yeah. Well observing is actually a superpower of mine. Um I, I do that all the time, man. It's it's one of the greatest ways to to network. Um especially when you're like it's like filled with puzzles. So when you publish tragedy for the first time, I was pretty much coming up. I was still just a fan. It wasn't until like I think issue two or three that I had really started actually being in the industry. But I had still saw it. And then I shared it a few times years ago. And then here up until here recently, like I think I had lost contact like with four because I wasn't on social media a whole bunch because um, that year was just super busy. I was like in my in my master's program trying to pound that out and get it over with. Um, but then I do like recently I just saw you again. It's like that that consistent seeing you and seeing your videos and watching you commentate on like other art channels uh, was kind of inspiring. And that's what kind of got me out of my shell to reach out to you and do this episode oh thank uh, you i appreciate that yeah no problem man but it's like the the art of observation it it starts mm -hmm. uh, with interest and peak and then like you reach out and you slowly make connections as you learn that some some more people are open than other people then you know you know which avenues to go to either when it comes to collaboration or just or just advice in general or to reach out when they're also promoting you know trying to build a community uh, which I think everybody aspires to do to some extent, you know, in all the groups that, you know, I'm a part of, you might be a part mm -hmm. of um, well, we all each other. For me, the death of creativity starts with ego. Um, if you, if you um, have an ego and you're not willing to listen, like for example, um, with Will on Withered, if you look at the cover he did, which is just amazing, it's painted, he has these burned hand marks on the head of the lesser demons. That was not in my character design. <clears throat> and he added it and he said, what do you think? Now, my ego could have been like, that's not what I put in there. Get rid of it. No, I said, well, what was your thought on that? You know, tell me about it. It's interesting. It looks kind of cool. And he said, well, he just thought maybe like the mark of the beast, so to speak, is the devil's imprint. And you know what? It sparked a very key plot point for me that I'm going to put in the book. Uh, and what that does is not only did putting my ego aside help spur more creative ideas that will help enhance and enrich the book, yeah. it also builds a good relationship with my artists that I respect and appreciate their input, not just draw, monkey, draw. It's <laughs> well, what is your experience to this and what can you add to it? And we'll appreciate that. <clears throat> just like, you know, uh, an artist who has to take edits for a book. If I say that's not what I was looking for, can you change this? Instead of getting offended, acting like, oh, you hate my art. It's, yeah, no problem. Let's just make the best book possible. 
So that's why when I look at some of these people, and you can see them, you can see who has the ego and who doesn't. Right. I don't want to be in charge. I don't. I'm the publisher. It's what I say. I want to be a publisher of great content and quality books. And if that means I have to shelf my pride and 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 listen to someone that says something that makes sense, that doesn't mean you take everybody's opinion. But if you appreciate what they're saying and you give it true consideration, it may be a, a go. It may be a plus. It may be something that enhances and helps uh, the situation. You know, and if it isn't, you just say thank you. Uh, but I don't think that works, you know. And that's really cool. That's that's the kind of relationship that, you know, that a writer and a creator should have with their artist. And I believe in comics when people are first coming up and especially me, like so when I attended comics experiences, introduction for writing with Andy Schmidt and Paula Lore, that was one of the first topics that we talked about was how to establish a relationship with your artist. And it seems to be some kind of disconnect where people are really hazy so there's this like there's a certain group of people that think when they pay a certain amount and they give artists you know descriptions or scripts to work off of that's like that's exactly how they want it like they paid for it they want that kind of american consumer and demand type type ideology and then there's like the group of creators that are like i have this idea and i'm gonna pay you this much which is whatever you want and then I'd, I'd like to make something happen. And that's those, those are the groups that like value the input of the artist. Cause the artist has a certain perspective, knowledge and education that sometimes writers without talent don't have. And so right. that's, that's a rapport that you can't like, <clears throat> once you get it's broken, like once you build it up, you can't tear it down type of and that's the thing is, aren't you stronger together? I mean, you know, a, a quality artist can help cover the deficiencies of a writer and a quality writer can help cover the deficiencies of an artist or an art director or, or an editor. Right. Um, the whole point is the goal should be <clears throat> all of us improving at our own craft and improving the the IP, the product. At, at the end of the day, when people look at Philbo Publishing, it doesn't matter if they like Phil or don't like Phil. What matters is what does this book look like and what does it read like? You know, what is the story? And if I'm going to shortchange that because of my pride or my ego or I have to be right or I have to be in charge, I'm really only cutting my nose off to spite my face anyway. And you have to surround yourself with people that have that like mentality because I hate to say this in this industry, there are a lot of fake people who act like they're about community. They're, they act like they care, but they're really motivated for themselves and their own egos and how they appear to you as opposed to what they really are and what they really want to do. Right. I don't want to be liked or respected for for any other reason than the body of work that I produce. You know, yeah. I don't want anybody, uh, if I would ever make it big, I, I'm going to stay humble and appreciative. I don't believe in the term fans. Not that I'm a wordsmith. I don't, I don't really worry about the power, you know, words, they're just words, but I don't use the word fans because they're supporters. I mean, without the support of these hardworking people that throw their hardworking money, probably from a job they don't like, to buy my book tragedy and make my dream come true, that's not a fan. That's a supporter. That is someone who's lifting me up. Right. You know? And I will forever be grateful for that. And that's the God's honest truth. I don't care if I was 
fortunate enough to, to be a really successful publishing company selling, you know, even if it was just 20, 30, 40,000 copies, which is not a lot in the comic world, but whether or 150, whatever, I'm, I will always be grateful to the people that hold me up and keep me up there. Right. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and everybody should kind of be that way. Ego, ego is the second thing we talked about. And, you know, when it comes to personality types and, and like astrological signs, I mean, there just are certain people who are destined to act in, and believe certain things. Um, if they're not, you know, I want to say awake enough or, or aware enough to, to know the difference uh, and kind of control their ego. I, I know I've had to do, I've had to deal with, with a lot of it, uh, especially in the film industry. Uh, certain when you, when you I'm accomplish sure. Beats, it gives you a certain level of confidence and sometimes that confidence kind of you know shadows mm. people in a way that you know doesn't really sit right you know with just that person and of uh, the other right. people it cre- creates an energy in the room where everybody's just kind of feels like they're locked in and they can't really say anything because if they do they get judged and <laughs> it should never be that way yeah, when you feel stifled and held back how the hell can you ever create efficiently you know what i'm saying i mean and and that's not to get into cancel culture and all that, but this 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 just hurts us creatively with content. You know, just remember, if a writer writes a character that's racist, that doesn't make the writer racist. Right. It's a character that they created for the sake of telling a story because racists mm-hmm. exist, right. and they did exist. And we have to stop because whether you're in a room of, of actors and directors and producers like you were just talking about and staff, that makes you feel you can't express yourself honestly or you're putting out content and you're writing it based on being safe all you're doing is hurting the creativity and the project and 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 the industry as a whole and this is why i think we're getting a lot of mundane you know um garbage i'm sorry a lot of the media is garbage now a lot of entertainment is garbage i feel um maybe i'm just an old man it's not written for me but i feel it's garbage it's either regurgitated stuff or it's too busy trying to put this image out of how virtuous the writer is as opposed to let's just write a damn story for the sake of an entertaining story there are bad people in the world there are good people in the world and all of us a bad person could do, do good things sometimes and a good person could do bad things sometimes. And we have to acknowledge that. And if we can't put that in our stories, we're just hurting ourselves. Yeah, I, I totally agree. You know, it all goes back to the, and you could probably attest to this where like, if you mind your own damn business, <laughs> <laughs> there won't be any problems. Mm-hmm. It's for people who don't have enough going on in their own lives that they make trouble for other people and it's sometimes it's out of pure boredom and not just that but if they take your focus (laughs) off of what you're doing then you'll fall down into the pit with them because misery loves company and jealousy breeds content uh, uh, contention so you know there's two different people in the world there's the person that's alone and sad about it but they see a, a couple in love on a park bench and even though they feel sad they don't have it they're happy for that couple Well, then there's the other person who hates them for having what they don't have and will try to break them up. And that's what a lot, not a lot, but some people do. You have to stay focused because if you let them bring your focus away from what you're doing, then they win. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's, that's one of the, 
God, that's one of the the messages inside the movie Gran Torino that made that movie so. Yeah, cool. love that movie. Oh, man, I, I tear up every time I watch that movie because you know when you don't think people care, and then other people are persecuted persecuted for you know being, you know what they were because of what they were involved in, um, and then that person goes out of his way to you know like make a better life in some way to maybe kind of redeem himself. And, and everybody thought that this whole time this one person didn't care and they were just blinded by everybody else's lies because generalization is like the worst disease ever next to cancer. <laughs> well, I mean, isn't it lazy? Isn't it fundamentally and intellectually lazy to, to generalize? Isn't it easy? Yeah. I mean, because Oops. putting everybody in one compartment is to um, ignore the intricacies of a personality. Right. Me? I'm not 100% good. I can be a jerk sometimes. It may not be intentional, but I can be a jerk. Sometimes I'm in a bad mood. Sometimes I snap at somebody. Sometimes uh, maybe I don't have the empathy I should have for someone. I'm just not understanding them. Um, Or sometimes I'm the most generous, kindest person in the world. I mean, we're all layered. We're all flawed and we're all, you know, human. And I think we've gotten to the point where we hold everybody to these ridiculous standards. Um, none of us are perfect. And you got to be careful in that glass house while you're throwing all stones because someday that house is going to shatter around you. Right. You know? And um, again, when we start doing this, when it comes to creativity, you're stifling creativity. The whole point of telling stories is we're world building. We can make anything a reality in this story. And that includes good things, bad things, and gray area. And that's what makes the layers are what make a story interesting and characters interesting. I mean, you don't get invested in two-dimensional characters. You get invested in characters that are real, that you can relate to. And when you can relate to them, you relate to them with their with their failures and their triumphs. Right. You know, you look at Rocky Balboa, one of the greatest inspirational films of all time. You know, this is a guy that he didn't want to win. He didn't think he was going to win. He just wanted to know that when that bell rang, he was still standing and he went toe to toe with the greatest fighter to ever exist, that he was relevant. He just wanted to be relevant. Right. Like that, that he, you know, he does matter. And, and that's what we all want deep down is to feel validated in the fact that we exist and we matter. And this isn't for nothing, you know? And when you can tap into that, uh people relate to that you know um we cheered for him he didn't even win that fight and it was the best like underdog story of all time yeah um and he was flawed he wasn't an intelligent man and he was a he was doing dirty work for a gangster so he wasn't really the best guy all his life but we rooted for him anyway because we're flawed, you know. Right. He wasn't a bad man. He was a good man that did a few bad things. There's a difference, you know. And we have to recognize that when we look at people in real life, as we have to look at it when we're writing characters, you know. Um, in tragedy, I have different factions: there's the Chinese mafia, the Italian mafia, uh, the Russian mafia, etc., Irish mafia. And you know, I, I had someone read it and say. Okay, but I think it's a little insulting that you, you know, uh, you refer to them as the Chinese mafia. I'm like, but that's what they are. I mean, he goes, why can't you come up with a, a name like, you know, Marvel did with AIM and Hydra? I go, because that's ridiculous. They're a mafia. 
you know, they're not a super science team that, you know, that created MODOK. They're mafia. So he goes, well, what are you going to do if there's a black mafia? I said, I'll probably call them by the person's name, you know, whatever the last name is, or I'll give them something else. Um, but, you know, when we can't call an Irish person Irish, we're really in trouble when it comes to creativity. I mean, really, you know, are we all going to just blanketly wash out the differences? Acknowledging differences in races and cultures is not looking down on them or insulting them. If anything, it could be honoring them or respecting them or just acknowledging that we have differences. That's not a negative thing. That's not a bad thing. And it only enriches and enhances stories. Yeah. Because there are differences. I, I don't I don't know when the narrative on that was flipped. I know when I was coming up as a kid and we had Scruff McGruff, the crime dog, and we had, you know, uh, uh, we, Uncle Stan was still prevalent. And then we had the, the bear with the fire. You know, like, only you. Yeah. Or yeah. Smokey like, the bear. And other than that, we had the youth outreach. And that was, you know, we we had a I don't know what happened to it. We had a holiday. And I remember celebrating this in elementary school, like where everybody, like we celebrated like the world's cultures. That's where that circle of life came from. And all the kids of different nations and colors and youths and cultures were holding hands in a giant circle around there. Like we don't do that anymore. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know. Well, we used to celebrate that the American culture was the melting pot that it was the amalgamation of so many different cultures. And somewhere we got away from that and uh, we've, be we, we've become divided. It's not the melting pot anymore. It's the, this faction, that faction, this faction, that faction. You know, it's very volatile, divided. Um, and uh, I mean, I have my theories. I'm not going to get into to them here as to what happened or why, but it's like to the point now, if I wanted to dress up as a samurai for, for Halloween or, or, or something, or if I was an actor and I wanted to play, say I was an Italian actor wanting to play an Irish boxer, uh, someone's going to yell cultural appropriation. We're getting a little out of hand. Um, if anything, it's paying tribute and respect to that culture uh, or just working as an actor. I mean, the idea of an actor is to pretend to be something you're not. So why the hell is it a problem to be something you're not? It makes no sense to me. Um, I mean, there's levels that go too far. I'm not for blackface. Um, but at the same time, when I watch Robert Downey Jr. do it in uh, Tropic Thunder, and it was it was a parody of itself, I don't see the offense. Um, I thought if that it was, was like an old minstrel show, then yeah, it's like, can you get with the times? That's a little ridiculous, <laughs> but... I, thought, I, I just we've gone too far. Yeah, I thought it was that 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 blackface with Tropic Thunder. I think was a little bit more allegorical than it was. Right. But I mean that whole movie in itself, like just being at Vietnam, you know. And if it was truly offensive to the whole world, then there's still a group of people that didn't think there was anything wrong with it because the movie got made. I mean, it was like as ridiculous as you know. North Korea threatening to to kill Seth Rogen and uh, what's his face for that movie The Interview James Franco <laughs> right is they were making an allegorical mm -hmm. statement about mm -hmm. you know often the North Korean prime minister and it was just a movie about two dudes in media who had an opportunity to assassinate 
you know, what we saw, what, what the American public well, saw in the movie as a terrorist. Well, like, here's an example. <laughs> I had someone reach out to me asking if I represented any female artists because he wanted a female artist for this book. Right. And my first inclination was, may I ask why it has to be a female artist as opposed to the style you're looking for, or the quality of the artist? And the person said... <clears throat> I just want to hire a woman to honor women artists and such and such. Now, my issue with that is where did we stop creating based on the best person for the job or merits of resume and um, contribution and talent and start hiring based on checking off a box? Right. I, I just... I don't understand because if it was reversed, for example, I want a male artist. Well, why a male artist? Well, I just want to honor men. But don't you want the best product out there? I have a female artist that draws better. You know, it's like we're sacrificing quality of content and creator creatorship for all these silly, silly political reasons. And it's like the comedians you should not restrict a comedian no matter how raunchy or crazy they are because it's all in the name of humor right. and it's just a form of 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 entertainment and once you start stifling them you're no longer going to have anything to laugh at right and then the world becomes 1604 london yeah, yeah there you go <laughs> And I mean, you... <laughs> how, how sterile do we want to be that we're so fragile that we want to scrub everything so cleanly that we're never offended? Uh, life doesn't work that way. But what it does provide you is a remote control to change a channel. <laughs> right. <laughs> Don't pick up the book at the store. Just set it down. Say your yeah. away. <laughs> you know, and when I write my stories, I always say this. If you know what I think or feel about any political or socio-political situation, I have failed you as a writer. Right. Because I am now preaching at you from my pulpit and using my comic book or my story as the, the megaphone. That right. is not the intent of entertainment. I have no right to do that. It's foolish of me. And it's, it, it, and it's just stupid. Every book that I put out is for one reason. My passion and love for the comics that I grew up on and that I used to get excited like it was Christmas every week, running to the store to pick up my whole new pile of books with the little dimes that I had to delve into those fantastical worlds and those characters that I adored and loved and enjoy that re those reads for that couple of hours that afternoon and anticipate with every ounce of my being the following Wednesday and what's going to come out next and the following month. And my books all reflect that. Just stories that make you enjoy reading comics again. Stories that make you excited about the world you're about to submerge yourself into. That's all they are. That's it. You know? And that's, that's originally what writing was, essentially, yeah. when it first came out. It was the, the retelling of accounts of person-to-person -person information. And then from there... It was the uh, the creative expression of the human mind and soul on paper and rocks and tablets and parchment and in books, finally. Um, and it's been that way ever since. 
and and it's it gives people a platform to sit down and and either work through things, entertain others, or pass on information. But again, you know, there's a time and a place for the different forms of uh, what you're putting out there. You know, a newspaper is to provide me political, socioeconomical, et cetera, news. Right. Not opinions, but news. Unfortunately, there are opinions <laughs> a lot now. Not uh, theater. <laughs> uh, it's like I don't go to ESPN for some political analysis. I will go to uh, a political station for that. I go to ESPN to watch people play an exciting sport that I can root for a team and watch the competition, healthy competition, and go from there. Um, There's a place for everything. And I just don't think comics, unless you make it clear it's a political satire, there's nothing wrong with that. Right. But again, make sure you're letting your audience know that. Look, this is a political satire comic. If you're into that, come check this out. But don't take the X-Men or the Avengers or JLA or whatever and decide you're going to put your political message and preach at me what you think about something. And, you know, people have said to me, well, what do you think X-Men was with uh, Malcolm X and uh, Martin Luther King? I said, see, there's a difference. You look at what Neil Adams did with, with Speedy as a junkie and everything, right? Right. You can take the social climate of the time as the backdrop for a story. There's nothing wrong with that. It's done throughout history in every form of media entertainment. Right. But you put it out there for the reader to decide who, what they think about it. And that's what they did. They didn't put it out there and preach to you that this specific president is bad or this, this party in politics is bad or that is bad. They simply put you in the environment where people misunderstood and were afraid of mutants, so they acted out. And they even told you they're acting out of fear and ignorance, not out of evil. So you're letting the reader go through the journey and decide for themselves. You're not, uh, you're not, they weren't telling you who you should believe in, who you should agree with, who's wrong, who's bad, who's good. They weren't doing that. So using the social backdrop is wonderful. Using it to tell everybody what you feel about that backdrop, backdrop as a writer, has no place in comics for me. Right. Is that is that part of the um, like the filtering process mm-hmm. when you're representing artists and people come to you? Like, how does that process work? Being being a, a representation of of artists or a person that represents artists to get them work and stuff. When people approach you about um, about projects, um, what do they have to give you? in order for you to to suggest an artist or how does that process work well when someone comes to me uh, i'll ask them what is the project what is it about how long is the project how many pages what's the deadline you know um we have our page rates established but we work with people i'll say you know what is what is the page rate you're looking for and what is the style you're looking for because i have artists of different styles once we kind of narrow a lot of that down and cut out the fat and get to the nitty gritty and they say it's because again, my artists are on other projects. I need to know if they can meet deadlines and be there because we'll never overcommit to anything. Right. A lot of people right now are taking more work than they can handle because they're afraid of dry spells and they wind up hurting the relationship uh, that they're, they've developed because of it. Right. So once, you know, I see, all right, well, I know these three artists can't meet this deadline, but these four artists can, uh, and out of those four artists, these two don't meet the style he wants these two do. Um, now I, I've 
cut out a lot of the fat and I'll say, well, I've got these two artists at this page rate uh, that are, are, would be interested, you know, uh, that are available for work. Uh, I go back to the artist, I tell them what we're discussing. And if the artist's like, yeah, that's a project I'd like to work on, cool. If they say it's not really my thing, you know, whether it maybe it's over-sexualized or maybe it's over-violent or maybe it's something against their beliefs, whatever, which is never the case. My guys are, are pretty easy going. They just want to work and, and enjoy drawing. Um, I'll go back and, uh, you know, and I, I send samples. And if the, um, the client says, yes, I'd like this individual on the book, I'll, I will then, now that I've done my part, I will do a three-way chat with them so they can, I can introduce them and I'll tell the client, you can directly, you know, of course, talk with the artist, just make sure I'm included in all communications. So I know what's going on and I'm here as a resource. If there's a misunderstanding, if there's a concern, or if the artist is like, I don't get what he's saying in the script, I will handle that for him so they can just draw. Because that's what they want to do. They want to draw. They don't want to handle the business part of things. That's why they hire me. Um, and I, of course, would collect the payments and make sure those payments are made on time. We usually do every five pages. We will send. What we do is the artist will send roughs for five pages. If yeah. the roughs are agreed upon and the, the the client is happy with the camera angles, the the positioning, etc., they will render the roughs with with pencil. Uh, usually, my guys ink their own work as well. Um, barring there's no issues at that point, uh, they'll ink it, they'll send it back. If there are any final, final edits, and again, edits have to be something that we misinterpreted, or if it's a simple thing you ask to change, we'll, we'll change it. But if it's a mistake on your part, that's not an edit, that's extra work. You know, gotcha. um, I have to protect the artists as well. They're not here to work for free. Um, once those edits are agreed upon, those pages are good they will send payment for the five pages and we send them the high res following payment for those pages. And we continue the process every five. It keeps everybody honest. It keeps everybody motivated, incentivized to do the right thing. And it protects everyone because the truth is when you're dealing in indie level stuff, contracts other than laying out who's responsible for what legally really don't mean anything because under 10 grand is small claims court and even if you win in small claims court, they don't garnish a salary. You have to go after them still to get your money, get the sheriff over there. It's 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 really a joke. So the best thing to do is just protect yourself because a contract is not enough at this level. Now, That's if you're dealing with twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollar IPs like or or, or million dollar IPs like DC and Marvel, absolutely, there's legal ramifications. But at this level, really, what can you do? Well, I mean, at that point, you've gone, you've gone into trademarking, which at that point is a more expensive version of copywriting. Uh, and they do that for every major IP they have, which costs a jackload of money. Right, right. But again, when you're dealing with some, you know, young independent guy's stuff and he doesn't pay you, gotcha. what am I going to do? Take him to small claims and he doesn't even live in my, my state. You know, I got to go to his state to file small claims. It's just, it's a joke. So... Every five pages keeps everybody honest. It it honestly it works every time. There's only one time that a client uh, couldn't pay, so we held on to the pages because they couldn't use them until they did. We just said, look, all right, we'll just halt and we'll wait for you. Uh, and they paid, and then we released the pages. Right. That's oh, a very honest project. Uh, um, it's a very honest process. I I had similar, had similar success with a, a company called Q Logic out of Texas. 
um, to finish my book because I had an artist that took on too much work and wasn't very communicable. Um, he did the first six pages of Wild Oni and then just kind of like fell off the radar for a while. Yeah. And then on my part, you know, coming out of pocket for the entire book, uh, payment wasn't as on time as I would have liked it to be, but I kept up communication. But by the time we were like into the, to the, to finish to the stretch of 10 pages, it was, you know, two months and I just didn't feel like the timeline was right there. Right. So. You know, I, w- I went outside, and of course, that's a huge thing because the art direction takes a sm- m- minor turn after page six, which is noticeable, but it's not overly noticeable. <laughs> well, it's Man, tough. And, and I, I had a I, gauntlet of, of learning experiences in my first book. Uh, it would have been a godsend to know about someone <laughs> who represented artists at the time. Yeah, and that's the thing is, I guarantee deadlines will be met because we don't look, I'm a publisher. Deadlines are the most important thing. You could be the best artist in the world. If you can't meet a deadline, you're not getting work. You'll never get hired again because you can't trust you. You have to be professional. I get it. You didn't want to work a day job. You love to draw. It's still a job. It's still a profession. And you have to maintain a level of that profession to continue getting work. And that's and I I only work with artists that that are professional like that and reliable. uh, And I will not I don't care if you draw as great as Jim Lee or Will Spatasio. If you can't turn in pages on time, you're useless. Period. Right. Period. Right. I will not do that to a client, and neither will the artists I work I work with. Yeah, deadlines are everything. I hear I've been I've been hearing that since like my first day of college. <laughs> yeah, I mean, really, I mean, you know, does your job like you coming late to work every day? Exactly. Will you have that job? Will you keep it, even if it's five minutes every day? No, you won't. Yeah. They're no, not paying you to be late. Yeah, totally understandable. And and I wish I could say it was fair across the board, but you know, not not everybody is is fair on both sides of the fence. Whether you're a writer with agreed skill, or you know, an artist with no writer skill who just wants to do perspectives and layouts and, and thumbnails. Well, that's the other thing. I run into a lot of people that don't understand character design is is an added cost. That's other work. And then there's there's royalties and there's creator credits. I mean. You know, Chuck Dixon created Bane as a writer, but Graham Nolan drew him and made him the aesthetic that he is, which is huge. So they get co-creator credit, as they should, and they get royalties. Oh, hopefully they get royalties, as they should. I have people come to me, and they're like, oh, well, I didn't design any characters or world or whatever. I need these designed. I'm like, okay, but they're not going to just start drawing pages and making it up as they go. We have to do character design sheets first, turnarounds and vehicles and ships and whatever before you can even get to production because you know what are you doing you know my (laughs) artist sequential work is very very hard at a professional level and they don't they're not going to sit there and like make up stuff as they go they have to have references they have to so writers have to understand you have to put artists in winning position when i send my writer stuff i've created designs already and i have three-point turnarounds for them uh, if I have vehicles, they're created already. If it's an average person that you really don't need to do that, that's fine. But I give them an, a description or maybe I'll, I'll use an actor as a reference, like kind of looks like Morgan Fairchild, you know what I mean? Or or try this suit on the person. I could Google a suit that looks good to me that I feel fits my image, my imagination, and I send it to them. Put them in winning positions and they'll give you top-notch work and they'll work faster. Yeah. But how long do you think it's going to take for this guy to create your world and make up what something looks like on the fly while he's drawing pages? It's just absurd. 
Yeah, that's 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 concept art. And and for a lot of like the independent beginners who are coming up aren't aren't introduced into the the traditional line of, of production publishing where it's there's a conceptual phase in pre-production and that's where the script is also written and designs are made and then you go into perspective where you're doing layouts and you're doing uh, perspective fields making sure everything follows from left to right the eye moves around the page and then when you get into editing which is the second part of it before coloring you, you're worried about page turnings and then you go into coloring and then you go into lettering so 70 percent of the work ends up getting covered up anyway right <laughs> Well, it's funny because I had a guy, he was new, it was his first book, and he and he's like, well, can he draw blah, blah, I said, sure, but it'll be this much money to draw the concept design. To be honest with you, I gave him a very low rate, and he was like, that much to, to just draw my character? I'm like, yeah, he's helping create the design that you don't even have a clue what you want to do, and it takes time, and he's going to be doing a lot of back and forth with you to get it right. And the guy thought I was ripping him off and he moved on. And I guarantee you, he couldn't find anybody else that was going to do it for free. That was of professional quality. I mean, they don't understand. You have to understand what you're getting into. Everybody thinks creating comics is just fun. Uh, there's a, there's a science to it. There's a business to it. And it is hard work. It is. It is. And, and you don't get paid for much of it once you're done. Yeah. There's a lot of work you do for free. That's, that's true. Uh, well, especially the marketing stuff, you don't hire anybody like all that, all that's time invested. Um, and, and it's hard to, to get around. Um, that's why promoting each other is so important. You know, you do work with another creator, they do work with you and you guys, you know, cross promote. Right. I've seen campaigns work together like that. I've seen other people do really good on their own. Uh, Russell Nolte is someone who I look to when I'm talking about like, or when I'm trying to, trying to level up on a certain thing, because, I've done math on just his volume three on hard to spell and, and over three different crowdfunding platforms, including the one he's got going on right now is uh, almost, almost a hundred grand. Wow. Good for him. Nine, 94, 94, 94, five was four fifty seven, And I was, which is volume three. Right. And that was the, the collaboration between him and a lot of other creators. And that's the power of networking and community. That's amazing. I don't know how you get to that level like that, that and so quickly. <laughs> uh, oh, if you go check out his Facebook page, he's been posting here recently, which is funny because uh, he, can, he can kick me in the butt later if he wants to, because he's been on the show recent or not recently, but last year, the beginning of last year, he was on the show talking about, you know, first time creators and how to level up. But he's been doing a series of Facebook posts. I don't know if he got bored, but he's a he's a very bit, very big advocate of like not giving away things for free. And it's OK to charge people for information because you're leveling up with their knowledge. Right. <laughs> so I've been I've been glued to his Facebook posts the last couple of days because he's been talking about leveling up. And I'm like, yes, I saved 10 bucks on your novel. <laughs> <laughs> Share, share all your secrets. I want to level up. Too. <laughs> That's uh, funny. So if you go look at his page right now, he's had like this, this like free Substack type newsletter thing where he's been like, you want to level up? This is how, and I'm sure at the end of it, which I haven't gotten to yet because it's so large, has a link to the book. Right. <laughs> I might have come across a paid advertisement for that. <laughs> Oh, um, it's there's there's just so many ways to tackle you know level up and, and success and at some level we're all still trying to to get better and grow, 
and that's the point of the journey, right? You know, especially when you're writing stories, the point of the journey is to grow and expand upon that which you started writing or which you started crossing over the threshold. Like characters are the same way. Like they start off as one thing and they become different at the end of it. Well, natural growth, it, you know, as is in real life is good for characters in fiction yep. as long as it's natural. Yep. And, and, and me being the type of writer I am, I'd probably be one of those method actors like Heath Ledger where I had to like stay in character for, you know, six weeks before you know, <laughs> stepping right. on the screen with Batman in a nursing outfit. <laughs> one of my favorite scenes in, in live action Batman ever. <laughs> Especially when the thing, when the building blows up, like the thing doesn't work at first. <laughs> yeah. And then it blows up. <laughs> and oh, the trigger man. doesn't work. Yeah, I mean, but I think there's a, a lot of great content out there that's not getting eyes on it. And it's really a shame. It's heartbreaking because I know a lot of indie people that are doing really quality work that deserve a larger audience. And it's, it's hard to, to get there, you know? If, I mean, I know there's, there's, I mean, we have diamond, right. And then there's preview lunar well, right. previews is diamonds catalog, but yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, subsidiary, same thing. You could get into preview. I don't know if there's any other ones, but it would be nice to have like an indie type pre yeah. um, with a list of nationwide shops that could be able to pick from, you know, indie community. I know that everybody, like, I, I know you've probably approached um, shops in, in your neighborhood. Like I've approached my shops on behalf of mm -hmm. other people and including myself, like that's the right way to go about it. But if we could all somehow come together and create a web, right. Like, creators in shops could carry in store um that would be great uh, well i will I tell you this tragedy is probably going to be either with lunar or diamond before the oh. year is out um we're in an age right now where diamond is no longer the king they're not as arrogant as they used to be they're looking at smaller ips now because they lost so many big companies that they're looking for revenue they just want to stay relevant and alive uh, so they are taking a lot of self-published indie people as long as it's a professional-looking title and you've proven that you can market it, et cetera, and they're willing to take them on. Oh. Um, <clears throat> I work with some of the best indie talent there is, but I also work with a lot of big-name people like Wills Potasio and Ian Churchill and Larry Stroman, Sean Chen, Tyler Kirkham, uh, Bill Sienkiewicz, Chris Pachalo. Like, you know, um, I have a nice mix of both. And, uh, you know, that's, I hate to say this, but star power has power. Right. Right. No, I told, I totally believe that, man. Um, I have a few star powers coming to wild only too, as far as covers go. Um, I had, uh, I don't know if you know who Paul Gomez is. Yeah. Um, I interviewed him a few times and he introduced me to Jeff Muth who did the cover for his PTSD not, uh, book. And Jeff Muth and I went back and forth for about eight months on a cover. And uh, he's got two covers, but he, he did me a solid. And we got out to Dan, got him to color the one that he did. Nice. And so I'm super blessed that, that I get that type of star power on, on what I originally had just planned on being an ash can. And it just kind of took off as a series. Very cool. I mean, I, I believe as independent creators, even though you feel indie, your community still involves the artists of, you know, 
major publishers because they at one point were indie. Right. And there's a lot of them that come back, like Steve Butler comes back and he gives back to indie. Um, Dan Kemp also gives back to indie. Um, some of the names that you named off, they, they give back to indie. And if you yeah, can, I mean, I work with Alex Sinclair and Chris Sotomayor and then two of the major colorists in the industry. And they, they work with me cause they give back, you know? Yeah. That's, that's so cool to hear and awesome to experience as well. Um, so you got weathered out on Kickstarter. Uh, you just ended another one tragedy five chapter five. Is that coming or is six the next one? Chapter five comes in May, and then the first trade paperback will come uh, in July. Okay. Uh, Dynamics ended in January, and Withered is live right now for another 25 days. Uh, Withered has everything that Philbo Publishing publishes up to date. So it also has uh, original art tier commissions from artists I represent, and it has art books from artists I represent. So it's it's got a plethora of stuff to choose from, not just withered. Uh, you could go there and essentially it's my whole library, uh, up to date. Okay. Awesome, man. And I, I'm, I'm going to assume that philbopublishing.com is the, uh, the URL. Uh, for the, for the, um, Kickstarter. Um, no, for my, uh, I'm right now, long story short, I had to take out my, I run my own conventions as well. I had to take down websites because I have someone who's a lunatic who was hacking them constantly, harassing my family. I had to take legal action. Um, so, and they were domain squatting with my um, website. So I'm, in, I'm almost done with the new website that'll be philboentertainment.com that will inco- incorporate everything from uh, a shop to buy merchandise and the books, et cetera, to highlighting the artists I represent, to taking submissions for people's IPs to publish, uh, for updated news and uh, uh, convention page and all my live streams that I do with some of the, the with all the people I've interviewed um, in the past uh, on there. So it's going to be this whole um, nice hub of everything that Philbo Entertainment Promotions does, from the publishing company to the convention creator con to the um, legendary illustrations art repping. Awesome, man. Um, when you get that link, just send it over and I'll go into the show notes and I'll pop that in there so people Thank can. you. I'm also going to be offering uh, my indie virtual alley where for a very, very small fee per month, and I mean, it's really small, uh, I will do a comicsology type thing where all these indie guys can put their, their digital um, issues up there to sell. And because they're paying the very small monthly fee that helps me maintain the website, I don't take any percentage of sales, but I do handle it for them. And I'm going to build an email list for them in the process of doing it because I have to, digital PDFs have to be emailed to people. Right. So when they get their monthly statement and their monthly payout, on whatever they sold, they will get the email list with it as well. Um, so I'm going to be doing that too. That's, that's kind of marketing. (laughs) Well, there's nothing wrong with helping myself while helping others. And, um, I, you know, again, the fee I ask for will be very low. I mean, it might might, no more than $20 for the month. Uh, because again, I'm putting in the time and the work to put up the the, the stuff, to email it to the people. Great like that, uh, the vouchers, you know, the voice, the, the, the payouts. And of course, just, you know, having it on my space, 
you know, I'm get bringing my fan base to them as well. Uh, I, you know, I'm not asking for much. Uh, I'm not looking to make a dollar off these, these people that are struggling already with their budgets. I'm just looking for a fair compensation to, to help them and maintain what I'm doing. Yeah. And, and also your time too, which, you know, is as valuable as everybody else's. Right. That's, that sounds ingenious, man. And what a wonderful opportunity for everybody involved. Uh, like a, creates a tight knit community to kind of look at each other's books and give an opportunity to help promote one another in one viable place. I agree. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> well, is there anything else you want to uh, say to, to the audience or anybody listening or anybody you'd like to send here? Like uh, as far as like links go, uh, con schedules, maybe when they can meet you, meet and greets, uh, any other thing? Um, right now I'm not doing any cons until uh, the end of the year. I might be doing New York Comic Con, um, which is my hometown. Um because I'm focusing on some other things right now, but we are publishing a lot of books. So long story, I'll make this quick as any want to go. Uh, Tragedy has been very successful for me. Uh, um, It's my flagship title. You really should check it out. It's a great book. uh, Well illustrated as well. And Chuck Dixon, Howard Mackey and Peter David say that it's written well, and that's good enough for me. Um, That is basically an Irish assassin uh, that deals with, it's like if you took Big Trouble in Little China and John Wick or um, Boondock Saints and you mixed it together and added more, that's what you get. So there's, there's martial arts and vigilantism and mafia, rival mafia and metahumans and, and superhumans and, and immortals and kung fu and martial arts and all this other stuff, but it all makes sense and it's solid. There's also the dynamics, which is if you took Power Pack and like The Incredibles and all that kind of thing, it's a family-friendly uh, book that uh, it's a family of superpowers with two young kids. It's got humor and an adventure and excitement, and it's everything that you can show your kids without it being, you know, any messages you don't want them to know about. Uh, and then there's my prose book, which is seven short stories based on theological fiction. Uh, it's it's where Withered starts. That's The Devil is in the Details. That's available. And then there's Withered the Comic, which is out right now, where time is not a construct of the human mind or a measurement. It is this malevolent, powerful being that has imprisoned God and is slowly, slowly satiating itself on our life energy over decades. And there's a great war. It's basically heaven versus hell that is going to get into eventually Greek gods, Egyptian gods, Japanese gods, Indian gods, etc. The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. It's going to be this huge epic thing. Um, and my three main titles are ongoing series. So uh, jump on board. Uh, the first arc for Tragedy is going to hit in May. It's going to end in May with tra- Chapter 5 and then the trade paperback in July. We're going to have big covers for the trade paperback by Chris Pachalo, Bill Sienkiewicz, and I can't name the third one right now uh, until I get that cover. So uh, please pay attention to Philbo Publishing. Don't take us lightly. We may be small now, but we're big in talent. We're big in presentation. And we're big in heart in what we put out there because we really want to bring comics back to where you just have fun and enjoy reading them again. We want you to escape into these worlds. And we write for pure enjoyment and entertainment and characters that you can relate to. 
Awesome, man. Awesome. And and I have all those links, which I'll provide in the show notes. Um, we really got to do this again, because I think there's some other topics that we brushed up that we didn't really elaborate on that deserve the spotlight as far as coming up into the industry and, and also an inclusive into, you know, right. And including my, my biggest question, which you could think about while we work out a schedule to do this again. Uh, how the hell do you find time to write three ongoing series and still do all this other stuff? <laughs> you have no idea. I've written 50 issues, uh, 50 scripts in, in uh, less than two years with a full job and kids and everything. And I'd write more if I had time. <laughs> Incredible, because I, I have family and kids too, and I have a part-time job. Well, I don't know. It's full-time. Uh, mostly full-time. And I still haven't managed to write even half of what you have. <laughs> oh, by the way, uh, I wrote five horror stories that will be in my horror magazine coming out in October called Diary of Dread. And I have a sixth story that's only 10 pages, but it's from Charles uh, uh, Santino, who drew Conan from Marvel, who wrote Conan from Marvel in the 90s. So uh, Diary of Dread is coming out really nice. It's horror in the vein of the EC horror books, like good old classic horror. Um the way it should be so look for that too excellent man well i appreciate you taking the time out of your night and your busy schedule and away from your family to come talk with me here on comics and pop tarts i'm your host inevitable mike come back and see us again um don't don't stop creating and don't wait for permission to because nobody needs it you just need to do it we'll do this again man everybody have a great night thank you take care man Hello, my name is Michael Nunley from Omen Comics and Revelation Comics. I had a great time on Comics and Pop-Tarts podcast talking about making comics on that long and windy road it takes to make them. I recommend this show to anyone who wants to give a little bit back to the community and for creators, maybe learn a little something about making comics.